always hunger for. Um, before we get too far into our service, I'm going to turn those off because we've been having reports that our camera is going in and out trying, trying to focus on something and not able to focus on it because we hope the lights and not the camera. So if you're watching on the live stream and you let us know if we're still having problems and issues with the focusing, we'd appreciate that. All right, before we jump into our, our text this morning, let me remind you of two other prayer requests. Um, Steve Rofe, we've been praying for Steve and the issue that he had. He was about ready to board the flight and come home. Uh, and then he was having some increased issues with his feet and his leg and swelling and all kinds of stuff like that. Uh, so he ended up in the hospital for a couple of days. I'm not sure if he's out of the hospital yet. They said four days possibly, um, but it could take up to four weeks for his foot and leg to come right. Um, they will probably, or there's talking about maybe giving him an IV push that will allow him to board the plane and come home and then pick up treatments once he gets here. Uh, I haven't heard exactly what he's doing about that, so I'm sure he would appreciate your prayers. And then also Scott Heath is uh, supposed to, well, he's actually on, he was supposed to get on a plane this morning and go to Georgia. Um, Savannah, he, they, they needed him down there for work purposes, uh, has to do with the, uh, uh, the supply chain shortage. They need drivers down there at one of the ports to kind of be a jockey to get things back and forth inside the area and so his boss asked him or told him, one of the two, I'm not sure which, that he was going to go to Georgia for a couple of weeks. So he'll be there for uh, about two weeks. That's the plan. So would appreciate your prayers with uh, regard to Scott and then, of course, his family that will be here without him while he's there. All right. Take your copy of the scriptures, if you would, and look with me at Second Peter. Second Peter chapter 2 is where we're going to continue, I'm sorry, First Peter chapter 2 is where we're going to continue our study uh, on the idea of a stone. Okay, last week our message title was Stones, and we talked about how we are to be a living stone, but we can only be a living stone because of the living stone, and that living stone, of course, is Jesus Christ. He gives us life, he gives us hope, uh, he gives us a relationship with the Father, and so as we think about the living stone, we want to do a little bit more of that with Peter this morning as he uh, brings home some more truths about the living stone. Our text this morning is going to be just verses 6 through 8 of First Peter chapter 2. Um, so if you would, please stand with me. We'll read this passage of Scripture together. First Peter chapter 2, verses 6 through 8. As we read it, we're going to pick up some things about the character of the stone. Peter writes, Therefore, it is also contained in the scripture. Behold, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone, elect, precious, and he who believes on him will by no means be put to shame. Therefore, to you who believe, he is precious. But to those who are disobedient, the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. A stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble being disobedient to the word to which they also were appointed. Let's ask God to bless our time together in his word. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning and thank you for the safety that you've given to us as we've traveled here to worship you. We know that several were hoping to be able to join us here this morning, but are unable because of the bad weather, the ice on the roads and cars and, and all of that kind of stuff. We ask your blessing upon them as well. Pray that you'll reunite us uh, as soon as possible, maybe even tonight, uh, if not next week. Father, we know that there's a vast... Uh, amount of need within our church family, and we, we lift them up before you. We think of Scott, who is uh, down in Georgia, or at least making his way down there uh, as long as the planes were able to take off this morning. We pray for safety for him down there. Pray for his family that he leaves back here in central New York. We ask for uh, uh, safety for them. We pray that you would just allow them to continue moving forward uh, and, and trust that you would uh, just uh, keep them healthy and safe uh, in Scott's absence. Father, we pray for the Severson family also battling with uh, um, the stomach bug. We commit them into your hands. Pray that this will be something that goes through their uh, family quickly and not lingers on and, and kind of goes from one and then to another, but they kind of might all get it at the same time. 
Uh, we pray, Father, for uh, Tim Stevens. Lord, we know that he is um, battling with COVID right now, but we lift him up before you because he, he needs to know you as his Savior. He needs to put his faith and trust in Jesus Christ uh, and, and come to know Christ as his personal Savior. So we, we lift him up there. We pray for Steve this morning. Know that he is longing to get back to uh, home and to be able to fellowship with us again. And so we commit him into your hands. We pray for healing in the foot and the leg. Uh, that that would uh, get brought under control quickly and, and he'd be able to come back home soon. Father, again, we ask your blessing upon our time in the Word. We commit uh, our study into your hands. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Okay, you may be seated. So we've talked about this idea that you and I have become living stones and the fact that not just living stones, but we are dedicated stones, And as dedicated stones, we have a particular purpose or a particular responsibility. Uh, And that responsibility, we'll get into that more next week, but let me just throw it out to you this morning, is that we are to offer sacrifices to the one true God. And it's clear from Peter that our lives are to be lived in worship to our great God. So Peter talks about worship, but he's not simply talking about gathering together on a Sunday morning to sing songs. Okay, um, and we've, we've mentioned this before that worship is not just the singing of songs. Sometimes in our contemporary setting, we kind of forget that there's other things involved in worship. But when we gather together, uh, it is our desire to declare the worth, the value of our great God. We do do that via songs when we sing songs, and that's why it's important that our songs are edifying and God-honoring and lifting up our Savior and giving Him glory and honor. Uh, so that's important part part of the worship, but it's not the only part of worship. Um, We worship God in other ways. We worship God through giving, and we have opportunity for you to do that. Uh, in In the box on the back table, you can give your offering to God, and you are worshiping God in that way. But we also spend time in worship by praying. We spend time in worship by testifying of God's goodness to us and his work in our lives, and we give worship to God by listening and participating in the preaching of the word of God. And that's important. And so all of these things make up our worship service. But you know what? Worship takes place outside of these four walls as well. You have the opportunity to worship God privately uh, in your home with your family. And we want to encourage you to do that. So Peter is talking about our lives being lived out in a form of worship to the one true God. He's talking about living a life dedicated to loving and serving the one who actually gave us life and made us part of his family. In this section of his epistle, the next couple of verses that we've already read, Peter goes into more details about the living stone. We see about his character, his nature, his integrity, and and even more than that. So uh, as we jump into our text this morning, I want to first of all point out a couple of observations that we can make from our text. Uh, The first one is observations that come from the pages of scripture. And the second observation that we can make is how people from two different groups within mankind respond to the living stone. Now, I intentionally have a little side item that I want to uh, talk about a little bit this morning. Not, it's not going to be the main focus of our time together, but I mentioned the idea of groups. And in humanity, we tend to put people into groups, don't we? There's focus studies, and there's this group, and there's that group, and there's all kinds of groups that have been put together and sometimes forced upon us within humanity. Um, you know you know that we spent much of our ministry lives in South Africa, and in South Africa, there were four different people groups. That's how they said it. That's how they described it. Those people groups were, were the majority of the people were black, and that was one people group. And then there was another people group called the coloreds, and that's a mixed racial uh, offspring from intermarrying of the blacks and the whites many years ago. And then there's the Indian group of people, which uh, South Africa has the largest group of Indians. That's people who come from India, uh, Indians outside of the country of India itself. And then the fourth people group is the, the white uh, group of people. And, and for many, many years in South Africa, there were, their, their culture, their society was broken up into four groups, okay? In America, we've uh, 
for some reason, uh, we've been focused more on two people groups, the blacks and the whites, okay? And, and, and for some reason, people like to keep our focus on that. Can I tell you that as we look through the pages of Scripture, those groupings don't exist? There is only one race in humanity, in, in our world, doesn't matter what color your skin is, the race is the human race, and God loves everybody who is in the human race. He doesn't care what color your skin is. And quite frankly, neither should we. Shouldn't matter to us. Okay? And so when we make up groups within people, because of our sin nature, we tend to make, make groups that are less than God-honoring. Okay, so as those who claim the name of Jesus Christ and, and are followers of Jesus Christ, we want to make sure that when we talk about groups of people, we, we use the same kind of groups that Scripture uses. Okay, Scripture doesn't talk about socioeconomic groups. It doesn't talk about financial groups. It doesn't talk about uh, this color or this culture or, uh, you know, there's no little Italy's in Scripture, okay, like there are in many of our big cities, Okay, scripture makes it clear that Jesus Christ came to this earth to die for humanity, the human race, and everybody is welcome to become part of the family of God. And so we want to leave our prejudices behind. We want to check them out. We want to get rid of them. We want to ask God to actually remove them from our lives, okay, because we want to be effective servants and pointing others to Jesus Christ, so the only groups that matter to us are the groups that are mentioned in Scripture. And let me just tell you what those groups are. In the Old Testament, there were Jews and there were Gentiles. And that really didn't have anything to do with races per se. It just was, if your father was Abraham, you were a Jew. If your father, your lineage, your descendants can't be traced back to Abraham, you were not a Jew. That was it, Jew and Gentile, okay? Uh, as we move into the, the New Testament or to the church age, uh, we see that there's two groups of people. Paul's pretty clear in Romans. He says there's neither Jew nor Greek, bond nor free. But you know what there are? There's lost and there's redeemed, okay? So like you're either a Jew or a Gentile, you're either lost or you're redeemed, you're either outside of Christ, you don't know Christ as your Savior, and for those people we pray, and we ask God to give us opportunities to communicate Christ to them, and we want to see them to come to know Jesus Christ as their Savior. Or you're part of the redeemed, okay? You're part of those that God chose to become part of his family, not just for the here and now on earth, but for all of eternity. And you know what? Scripture says that God, Jesus, died on the cross to make Jew and Gentile one, to, to break down that partition, to get rid of it. God wants us to be one with each other and united in the bond of Jesus Christ. I remember um, we had this one lady in our church over in South Africa, and, and she was an older lady, so she grew up during the apartheid years. And, and, and I went to visit her one day, and she said to me, she said, Pastor, you won't believe what my girl did. Now, when she said girl, she wasn't talking about her daughter or a descendant. She was talking about somebody who worked for her. She said, this girl of mine, she had the audacity to come into my lounge, which is a living room, and watch my TV with me. She had a living quarter uh, at the back of the house that was her own, and she could live there and stay there, and I think she even had a TV, but she had the audacity to come in the, the, to the lounge in the big house and watch TV, and she had a hard time getting over that. I said, listen, that shouldn't bother you that much. Easy for me to say, because I didn't grow up in that culture, okay? But as her pastor, I wanted to try and help her get past that and understand that who cares if your girl came in and watched TV with you. You should enjoy that and look for opportunities then to communicate Christ to her. That's what it's all about. You see, Paul wants us to understand in Ephesians how God take, took these, these two groups and he desires to make them one. Uh, he says in chapter 2, verses 13 through 15, but now in Christ Jesus, you who formerly were far off have been brought near by the blood of Jesus Christ. 
for he himself is our peace who made both groups, that's Jews and Gentiles, into one and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall by abolishing in his flesh the enmity which is in the law of commandments contained in ordinances so that in himself he might make the two into one new man, thus establishing peace. Man, wouldn't that be great if we could get rid of all of the racial tension, all of the hatred that exists in our world? can I just say this though I wonder how many people actually want that to happen as the child of God that should be a longing of our heart that the races become non-existent because there is only one race and that we would have this desire to see people come to know Jesus Christ and establish peace in their lives If all groups of people would come to know Jesus as the Prince of Peace, then we wouldn't struggle with peace in our world. But we do. Paul talks about the two groups. Outside of Christ, though, well, the greatest need that people have, it doesn't matter what group you come from, is the need to know Christ as their Savior. The need is to come to the living stone that Peter talks about here in chapter 2 and allow the living stone to bring life to you so that you can also become a living stone. That's my little aside. I just wanted to talk about that just for a moment because in Christ, there should be no groups. There should be no divisions. We should strive to be one. Well, there are uh, a report in Scripture about the stone that we want to consider this morning. The first part of the character of the living stone that we want to see this morning comes from reports that are contained in the pages of scripture. Peter says in verse six, therefore it is also contained in scripture. So our question should be, well, Peter, where is it contained in scripture and what is reported in scripture that we need to be aware of? Well, first of all, uh, we understand that the New Testament quotes a lot of Old Testament scripture. And, and, and we wouldn't really have the New Testament if we didn't have the Old Testament. So thank God for the Old Testament. Um, but one thing I want to point out to you, in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, this is what we're talking about here. Remember what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11, remember that which I have received from you, I give to you from Jesus Christ. I received it from God, therefore I pass it on to you. That's really what Peter is saying here. It's contained in Scripture, so let me remind you what Scripture says. Scripture says, first of all, that the living stone, and we know who the living stone is, right? We've established that this living stone is none other than Jesus Christ. So the living stone is, first of all, foundational. It's where we begin. It's where we start. Peter's first report from Jewish scripture is a reference to Isaiah chapter 26, verse 18, where the prophet Isaiah wrote these words. You look at 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 6 through 8. I will read Isaiah chapter 28, verse 16. Isaiah 28 says, Therefore thus says the Lord God, Behold, I lay in Zion a stone for a foundation, a tried stone, a precious cornerstone, a sure foundation, whoever believes will not act hastily. Does that sound familiar? That sounds a lot like what Peter wrote, right? Because he's quoting from Isaiah chapter 28. And we want to see now what Isaiah talks and says about this foundational stone that has been laid down for us. First of all, we see The prophet says that this living stone, this foundation stone, is a tried stone. Isaiah and the Holy Spirit want people to know that this stone is not just any stone, but in fact, it is a tried stone. It is a tested stone. Now, when something is tested, it means it's gone through the rigorous period of testing to make sure it can handle the stresses and the pressures it will face when placed in its final position or the position that it was meant for. It has the idea of being battle-tested. We used to buy things when we lived in South Africa that had this particular stamp on it. USBS. Is that what it was? 
United Board South African, United Standard Board of South Africa or something like that, okay? So if it didn't have that stamp on it, we didn't buy it. It's kind of like being, uh, having gone through the Consumer Reports Digest and you get the Consumer Report Reports stamp of approval, this is a good product because Consumer Reports has tested it and, and, and it's, it's, it's proven to be a good, a good product. When you buy a car, you might check out what uh, car, U.S. Cars Reports has to say about the car. You might say, hey, I want to find out what this is all about uh, before I expend such a great amount of money on a car. I want to make sure what car and driver says about this car. Okay, so it's tried, it's true. Somebody has put it through the tests. Not just saying, hey, from the people who made it, this is a good product, you should buy it. When I buy stuff online, I read the reviews before I buy it. And if it doesn't have a lot of reviews, like five, six hundred, a thousand, ten thousand, twelve thousand, depending on the product, I won't buy it because it doesn't have a lot. Of... In other words, people haven't tested it out and said, hey, this is what you do. Uh, ben could probably tell us when it comes to computer stuff, when the first version of the update comes out for Windows, whatever it's going to be next. I don't know Windows because I don't use it anymore. But anyway, Windows, maybe it's Windows 11. Uh, do you want to be the first person to install that on your computer? Ben's, Ben's shaking his head and saying, no, 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 you don't want to do that. Why? Because there's too many bugs. There's too many fixes that need to be made to, to, to make it so it's, it runs without a problem. It's not been, yeah, it's been tested to some degree, but not massively tested. The stone that we're talking about here, this foundation stone, is a tried stone. It's tested, it's true. It can be counted on to do what it's supposed to do. And what is it that the tried stone is supposed to do, that the foundation stone is supposed to do? It is supposed to make us right with God. Hallelujah, that it is tried and true. We also see that it is a precious stone. We've looked at this word precious a couple of times. Peter calls Jesus, the living stone, a precious stone. The Greek word here gave us the idea of an extremely valuable stone. But you know what? Isaiah calls him a precious stone as well, which means he's talking about him from the Hebrew perspective. Okay? This idea of the, from the Hebrew perspective is that this precious stone is rare. You don't come across it every day. It's something that is of extreme value, but it's very rare. Not something that you can replace easily. We went out to Illinois, and my wife's mother has a huge, or shall I say, had a huge bell collection. Okay, The, the daughters got to go through all of the bells and, and choose which ones they wanted. So my wife, I don't know how I many she brought home, like maybe a dozen and that didn't make a dent. What do, what do they have? How many bells? Over 400 bells her mom had. Okay, so we're, that's a lot of bells. Barb brought home like a dozen. Okay, some of them were Christmas bells. And she had them set up uh, uh, over in the, on the little table. And then she wanted me to feel something, see how hot it was. So I reached over to touch it. And it wasn't that hot. And I didn't realize that I didn't raise my hand far enough, but I caught the top of one of the bells, and it fell onto the hardwood floor. And the wooden floor won between the bell and the floor. And it broke. It didn't just break like the handle off. That would have been okay. We could have glued it back on. But it broke it into lots of little pieces. And I'm like, oh. And you know, a guy, you know what the guy's first response is? to yourself at least, where can I find something to replace this bell? Where can I get the same bell to, you know, to, to fix it? Some of you guys are smiling like, yeah, you've been there, right? And my wife says, don't worry about it. It's just a bell. And, you know, and so it wasn't a replaceable bell. That's the kind of stone that we're talking about here. Precious. You can't fix it. You can't replace it. You can't make it any better. It is the best. This precious stone that we have. Isaiah communicates to us that this bell is simply irreplaceable. In fact, 
We could actually say that the stone is a one-of-a-kind stone. This perhaps goes all the way back to when Solomon constructed the temple. In 1 Kings chapter 6, uh, it documents the construction of this magnificent place of worship. And in verse 7, we read these words. And the temple, when it was being built, was built with stone, finished at the quarry so that no hammer or chisel or any iron tool was heard in the temple while it was being built. Say, well, what's the big deal about that, Pastor? Well, what the big deal is that when they were at the quarry, they fitted these stones together so that when they got to the temple, they could put those stones in the one place that each stone would fit. It was specifically cut and chiseled and made for that spot. Don't put it in another spot because it's not going to fit right. It's not going to look right. These stones were chosen and specially shaped and fit together so that they would fall into the right place in the temple. And it made the temple a magnificent, beautiful place that it was. This is a great picture of how God chose and fits us into his body, his church, his work, his masterpiece, if you will. So we see that it is a tried stone and a precious stone. We also see that it is a sure stone. This sure stone means to be the one and only stone. In Isaiah, he was reminding the Jewish readers that God is the only God. There is no other way to be assured of truth and salvation than with this one true God. We've been working on and singing a song. Uh, sometimes we've sung it a couple times in the morning, but we've sung it several times at night. We sang it again this past Wednesday night in our praise and prayer. Um, and this song that we've been working on is called Only a Holy God. And it does a great job reminding us of how this is a sure stone. Listen to how the song starts out. It says, Who else commands all the hosts of heaven? Who else could make every king bow down? Who else can whisper and darkness trembles? You know what those are? Those are what we call rhetorical questions, where the answer is understood. You don't need to really give an answer for that. Who else can do these things? Well, the song goes on, and it does give us an answer. And the answer is, only a holy God. Only a holy God can command all the hosts of heaven, can make every king bow down, and can whisper in darkness trembles. And the song also goes on to say, what other beauty demands such praises? What other splendor outshines the sun? What other majesty rules with justice? Again, the answer, only a holy God. There is nothing else that demands praises there is nothing else that outshines the sun, and there's only one majesty that rules with justice. That's only a holy God. As the song continues, we see even more amazing things about this one true God. What other glory consumes like fire? What other power can raise the dead? What other name remains undefeated? There's no one else and nothing else that can claim these truths, only a holy God. Then the song makes it personal. Listen to the words of the final verse. Who else could rescue me from my failing? Who else would offer his only son? Who else invites me to call him father? You see, this sure foundation, this one and only living stone is the God of the Bible. He's a personal God. The next lines in the verse make a change where we've up to this point saying only a holy God. The next two, verse, next two lines say only my holy God. Only my holy God can invite me to call him Father. Only my holy God can rescue me from my failing. Wow. 
This is quite a stone that we're talking about. What a character this stone has. He is indeed the one true God, the living stone, the tried and true stone, the precious stone, the sure stone. He is the one and only stone that I need in my life. He gives me life. Well, Peter goes on and and he tells us in our text that this living stone makes us fearless. He makes us fearless. First of all, we see he's our foundation. Now we see that he makes us fearless. Now let's think about this for for a minute. Why can we be fearless? Some people are fearless when in reality they should be fearful. Some people do things and we say, wow, that person, they don't have any fear. When in reality, they probably shouldn't be doing what they're doing to begin with. (laughs) We used to, I told you this before, I think, we used to jump off the gym roof at our school into the snow. Two stories, jump off of it, boom, into the snow. It was fun, it was great. Eh, It was really stupid. Because about probably two feet from the building were these bushes, these pine trees that were growing up. We didn't take into account that if we overjumped, we would land on the pine trees, which might not be good for us or the pine trees. But hey, we were up there and everybody else was doing it. So when, when your parent asks you, if everybody else jumped off the cliff, would you? You got it. Depends on how much snow is at the bottom of the cliff though, I suppose. Because we didn't do it if there, weren't any, if there wasn't snow on the ground, we didn't jump off the gym roof. Okay, so anyway, uh, you know, when we do fearless things, sometimes we do stupid things, and that's not a good compliment on our behalf. It's not, it's not, well, we thought it was pretty cool, but it probably wasn't the smartest thing to do. Our fearlessness is not being foolhearted. Some people forge ahead in desperate situations without thinking through the outcome, And when it comes right down to it, they're actually doing something foolheartedly. Not so, though, with one who trusts in the living stone. Our fearlessness has a sure and a steadfast base. Hymn writer Edward Moat captured this truth in the well-known hymn that that we have been singing as a church, not necessarily our church, but the church has been singing since 1864. The opening line goes like this. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. The chorus goes on to say, On Christ the solid rock I stand. All other ground is shifting sand. All other ground is shifting sand. You see, we can be fearless because of our hope. Our faith is placed in the Son of God, not in anything human. I really like the way the Bible Knowledge Commentary sums up this idea of fearlessness. It says, never indeed will they be ashamed. So Peter encouraged his readers with a sure scriptural promise of ultimate victory for those who trust in Christ. For those who trust in Christ. We can be fearless because our trust is not in man, but our trust is in Jesus Christ and what he has promised us in the pages of scripture. My faith has found a resting place, not in device nor creed. So as we think about this foundation that we have and the fact that our Savior uh, is indeed the one who fulfills the reports of scripture as being the stone who is precious, who is tried, who is true, who makes you and I followers of him and fearless because we know that our future is in his hands. Well, as we move from verse 6 to verses 7 and 8 in our text this morning, we see the response of mankind to the stone. It brings us back to those two groups of people, the only two groups that matter, whether you are lost or whether you are redeemed. Peter describes it this way. He calls them those that accept the living stones. To you who believe... Now, there's not a lot said about those that accept the living stone in our text this morning. Peter doesn't go into great detail about those who accept the living stone, except he says this, therefore you who believe, 
You, you who follow Jesus Christ, you who know him as your personal savior, to you, he is precious. He is precious. Romans 10 explains this idea of those who believe in Jesus Christ. We've referred to this Romans 10 passage already, but let me read verses eight, uh, starting with verse eight and going through verse 10. It's a great explanation of those who believe and how that comes to pass in one's life. But what does it say? What is the it there? What does scripture say? The word is near you in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith which we preach. That if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes unto righteousness and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. You see, those who have been called, those who have been chosen by God, believe that the scriptures declare that Jesus Christ is the only way to reconciliation with the Father. They believe that the gospel is the means to be brought into a personal relationship with God through the Son, Jesus Christ. Those that accept the gospel, believe the gospel, they see the living stone as precious. There's that word again, that word precious. There's nothing like it. There's nothing that brings salvation except for the gospel, except for Jesus Christ, the living stone. You've heard me talk about Acts 4.12 many times. Neither is there salvation in any other, for there is what? No other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. The only way to be saved is through Jesus Christ the living stone. But there's that other group. And although Peter didn't say a lot about the first group, those who accept the living stone, he has a bit to say about those who abandon the living stone. He he calls them this, but those who are disobedient, to those who refuse to obey, to those who refuse to believe, This is what is true. He says, the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. You know what what Peter's saying here? God's plan will not be thwarted. God's plan will not be stopped. God intended that Jesus would be the cornerstone. And even though the religious leaders of Jesus' day rejected the cornerstone, that doesn't mean a thing. Except for them. It means a lot. But in God's plan, it's not going to stop it. In eternity past, God planned that his son Jesus would come to earth, that he would offer himself as the Messiah to the Jewish people so that all the world could be blessed through him. He offered himself that way, did he not? We've just been through the Christmas season. We've read about Jesus in the gospels. We know that Jesus offered himself to the Jewish people. And we also know that the Jewish people rejected him. John chapter 1, verse 12, one of the saddest verses in all of Scripture. He came to his own, but his own received him not. They chose to reject him. They didn't want anything to do with him. This didn't surprise God. He knew it. He knew it would happen. In fact, he actually prophesied it in the Old Testament. You see, God is sovereign. He's not surprised that the Jewish people rejected Jesus as their Messiah. And even when things don't look like they're going well, can I tell you and remind you that God is still in control? Because it might not look well from a human perspective, but God sees the end. We don't see the end. We only see what's in front of us. God sees the end picture. He sees the end result. He sees us as sanctified, set apart, children of God, complete in that work of sanctification. But God is sovereign. Even when things look terrible from the outset, God is still in control. His plan was accomplished. And guess what? The cross was a part of it. Oh, if you were one of the 12, minus Judas, your world was shattered when they hung Jesus on the cross. And and Jesus cried out, it is finished. 
They thought life in and of itself was done. All of this that we've spent our lives in for the last three years, what a waste. That's what they thought. But the cross was part of God's plan. His plan was accomplished. The builders that Peter is talking about and that Isaiah talked about were the religious leaders of Jesus' day. They rejected him. But that wasn't the end. And you and I should say, praise God, thank you, Jesus. Because the church was part of God's plan. You and I being grafted in to the olive tree is part of God's plan. And that rejection of Jesus as their Messiah took place and makes possible our being in the body of Christ. Jesus, before the cross, in Matthew chapter 16, promised something. He said, I will build my church. And from the day that he was rejected, he began to build his church. And the gates of hell will not prevail against it. So God's plan will not be thwarted. But as we move on in our text this morning, we see that there's a great consequence for those that reject the living stone. Peter says those those that reject the living stone will trip over that stone or trip on that stone. Says there, and a stone of stumbling. The living stone, Jesus Christ, is a stone of stumbling. And those that rejected the living stone, the very cornerstone of the building, now bear the consequences of that rejection. You see, Peter's painting quite a picture for us here. He's again quoting from the Jewish scriptures. This stumbling was not just a losing of your balance and then regaining and going on without any really negative consequences. We've stumbled like that, haven't we? Sometimes there's nothing in the way and we simply don't pick up our feet high enough or whatever and we stumble or we stub our toe and we kindly quickly regain our balance and maybe we check or look around, make sure nobody saw us stumble, right? And we've done that, haven't we? That's not the kind of stumbling we're talking about here from Peter's uh, words that he uses. This stumbling is like the stumbling in Daniel chapter 19 verse 11. It says, but he shall stumble and fall and not be found. This stumbling has wicked consequences. James Fawcett and Brown makes this comment. It says, not merely they stumbled and that their prejudices were offended, but their stumbling implies the judicial punishment of their rejection of the Messiah. They hurt themselves in stumbling over the cornerstone. And in fact, they didn't just hurt themselves, they destroyed themselves. This stumbling has deadly consequences. It's like climbing up a mountain and there's sheer rocks on both sides and you stumble and you fall off the edge of the mountain. That's how serious this stumbling is. And when you fall off, There's no recovery. Peter says, they stumbled over the stone of stumbling. And he goes on to say that those that reject the living stone, that results in their being trapped. He's a rock of offense. More word pictures here from Peter. This rock of offense comes from two Greek words. The first one, Petra. We're familiar with that word, right? It's a large rock coming out of the ground. The second Greek word is scandalal, which is a trap that is set to trip something or someone. There is something worth noting about this trap here. This trap is one that results in the rejection of the living stone. You know what? This trap could be avoided. It wasn't hidden. It wasn't disguised. It wasn't out of the sight so you wouldn't be able to see it. Jesus came as the Messiah, clearly, plainly offered himself to the Jewish people. You and I communicate to our loved ones, our co-workers, our neighbors, even strangers. Jesus loves you. Jesus died for you. Jesus wants you to be part of his family. And yet they still reject it. It's not a hidden trap. It's a trap that they've chosen to walk into. Straight ahead, boom, 
And once they get in there, oh no, I'm trapped, I'm stuck, I'm in desperate trouble. This trap can be avoided if one does not reject the living stone. But for those that reject the living stone, this toll or this trap takes a toll on unbelievers. What's the toll? Peter says they stumble being disobedient to the word to which they were also appointed. Peter uses that word stumble again. You think he's try, you think he's trying to make a point? A couple of weeks ago I went to the doctor because my elbow's been bothering me. Um and and he examined it and he says, "Yeah, he says this is um and he gave gave me the big fancy word for it. He says this is tennis elbow. You've had it before." I said, "Yeah, but it didn't feel the same." He says, well, this is, not a, this is not a mild case of it. He says, you've taken a month to get to me to report it, so it's going to take at least a month for it to get better. He says, so um, what you need to do is ice it. He said, and, and, and you should ice it. I said, okay. He said, and, and let me tell you, another thing that you should do is you should ice it. He said, am I making my point? Do you understand that you should ice it? I got it, Doc. I'll ice it. And he also said you should wear your little thing that I I prescribed for you to wear on your elbow. But you should ice it. I got it. Peter's talking about stumbling. Stumble, stumble, stumble. Did you get it? Yeah. People are going to stumble over the living stone. But they don't have to. What does that mean for you and I? We keep talking about this living stone. We keep telling people about the living stone. This mountain that people are going to stumble off of, it's the mountain of God's grace. So let's keep making people aware of the grace of God as we talk with them, as we live with them, as we work with them, as we do life with them. Let's make sure people know about our great God so this toll doesn't befall them. But it will happen if they continue in their rejection. Peter makes that very clear. There's two more things that we need to quickly discuss as we wrap up our study this morning. He says here that these people are going to fall and, and, be stum- and, and stumble and be trapped because of a choice they make. What's that choice? Excuse me. Well, he says they are disobedient to the word. Their choice is to reject the word, reject the written word of God, and reject the living word of God. The living word of God is the stone. The living stone is Jesus Christ. You know, people want to know, what is the unpardonable sin? I don't know... You know, there's a couple places in Scripture talk about the unpardonable sin. I can tell you one that I know for sure is an unpardonable sin is if you reject Jesus Christ as the Son of God, as the only means of salvation, that's unpardonable. Everybody who does that will go to hell. Is there another sin that we can commit that's unpardonable? I'm not worried about that one. I'm worried about this one. And I want people that I know and love to know Jesus Christ as their personal Savior. So, Can we encourage people to know the word, learn the word, accept the word, and live by the word? Don't be disobedient to the word. We also see here, Peter says, their destruction is sure. He says, that which they were also appointed to. Now, this may be a little confusing to us as we first look at it. So we need to be clear on what this phrase actually means. Some people might tell you that this phrase is, uh, well, see, they, God does appoint people to hell. That's what it says. They were appointed to that. No, that's not what the verse says. Let's be very clear on this fact that God does not, has not ever appointed somebody to hell. It's not God's desire for somebody to go to hell. He doesn't want anybody to go to hell. In fact, Peter says that. He's not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. We also know from Scripture that that's not going to happen. Not everyone is going to repent. In fact, only those that God calls and chooses and uses his Holy Spirit to convict and to chide and bring them into a right relationship with him will come to him. You see, God doesn't want 
anybody to go to hell. He hasn't appointed people to go to hell. He doesn't do that. It's contrary to his nature and his character. But for those who choose to reject Jesus Christ as their Savior will reap the consequences of that rejection. And that's what Peter's talking about here. Those who reject Christ will receive the consequences for that which was appointed to them. If you reject Christ, you choose to do that of your own free will. You choose to reject Christ, you will receive what was appointed for all those who reject Christ. And that is eternal separation from God in a place called hell. You see, there's no changing that. God's not going to make an excuse. He's not going to make an exception. When we had visa visa issues in South Africa, we hoped that they would make an exception and say, okay, it was our fault, because it really was. But, But that didn't happen. And, and I was, after my first appointment with Home Affairs, I was driving back home in the car and I heard on the radio that they were expelling a couple of athletes because they had the same problem we had. And I knew right then and there, man, if they're going to expel athletes for this same problem, <laughs> us missionaries, we don't stand a chance. There's no way they're going to give an exception to us. God's not going to make any exceptions for anyone who has rejected Jesus Christ as their Savior. He cannot. He cannot. It's against his nature. It's against his character. They were appointed for that rejection. Those who reject Jesus are are appointed to hell because of their own choice to, to, to reject him. MacArthur explains it well when he says, unbelievers receive the exact judgment for their sinful choice that it demands. To this doom they were also appointed because they do not believe and obey the gospel. God does not actively destine people to unbelief, but he does appoint judgment or doom on every unbeliever. Well, that brings us to the end of our text, and you say, Pastor, why do you want to end on such a discouraging note? Well, I don't want to end there. I want to remind you about those who have accepted the living stone. And the joy that is ours, the hope that is ours, the reality that he is precious. Therefore, to you who believe, he is precious. To those of us who know Christ as our personal Savior, he is the precious stone. There's nothing like him. Nothing compares to his value. Nothing compares to his worth. He is indeed worthy of our worship and all the glory that we can bring to him. It makes me think of a song that uh, I love the words to. It's a very short worship chorus. Ascribe greatness to our God, the rock. The rock, is his word is perfect and all his ways are just. He's a God of faithfulness without injustice. Good and upright is he. So as we leave this morning, may we determine to give God the glory that is due his name because he is a God of greatness, he is a God of glory, he is a God of justice, and he is a God who gives us hope. Our gracious Heavenly Father,